Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. Hey, Cliff. Hi, Bobes. How you doing, man? All right. Just had a beautiful day today and uh, enjoying it. Yeah. Weather's, uh, weather's perfect for some social distancing. Yeah, but now we're going to have some social discourse. Excellent. Excellent. I understand you have a great guest on tonight. You want to introduce him? Yep. The magnanimous Dr. Russell Jones. Very good. Yeah. Russ Jones, of course, is a great researcher out from West Virginia. He has a book, um, Tracking the Stone Man. Uh, and he's a longtime friend, so I'm happy to have him on. Hey, guys. How you guys doing? Good. Hey, Russ. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Sure. It's good to talk to you guys. Hope you're surviving the winter. Yeah, I was just going to give Russ a little intro for some people that people that are into Bigfoot would know who he is, but for the people that just used to just watch the show and stuff, you, you were actually on camera with us in West Virginia at least once, or was it twice? Yeah, I know uh, that I helped out a couple times in Ohio and uh, – a couple of times in West Virginia as well. You were on screen a few times, but I, th- I think what you just said is really important because uh, Finding Bigfoot, we were successful at what we were doing because we had a team of people supporting us, um, on the uh, like boots on the ground, Bigfooters in all sorts of parts of the country. And, you know, Russ is one of them. And he also got to be on camera as well in the West Virginia episode. And you're still researching to this day. All the time, all the, uh, you know, as much as I can be out there, man, I really shoot for about, you know, 100 hours a month is what I'm after. And nice. sometimes you can get more and sometimes you can get less. But, you know, I think the thing that surprised me the most was that how many great stories and how many great um, sightings they were that people just were leery of going on TV about, you know, maybe they were just nervous about it or whatever. But I remember in West Virginia and Ohio, some of the best ones we had, you know, that people just wouldn't come forward that way. I get it. You know, television is a harsh environment for a witness, you know, up to the judgment of everybody, good or bad. Sometimes it's just best to be quiet and know what you yeah. know. Yeah, you know, there was, uh, just recently, there was an exci- a sighting that I was excited to talk to the person about. And when I called, uh, they didn't want to talk. You know, they they were willing to file a report, but that was about as far as they were willing to go. Yeah, that's something. At least you got that. That's great. That's, yeah. Some people don't even do that. You, you run one of those... Uh... Audio programs like B Mills, right? Like you got the recorders out there, you leave them out there for extended periods, then review them, and you've gotten some good results, as I recall. Well, you know, the thing that I've been messing with the most, and last year at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, I spoke about it, is the game cameras. And I was above 30. Now I'm at 29 because I had three um, 
get stolen just here in the last couple of months. Oh, and, wow. um, you know, I am doing some of the long distance recording, long duration recording, but, you know, some of the problems you have with that, it just seems like that, um, if you're in an area that's a little noisy, man, it just takes so long to get through all of the hours of recordings. Um, and I'm just still hooked on the game cam thing, man. I'm, I'm changing my game a little bit. You know, I'm always trying to evolve it and, um, you know, but it bummed me out because I had this place that, you know, I always tried to develop a relationship with the Rangers at the different parks and, this one ranger at a park in Ohio and she had suggested a place for me to go. And they'd had a ranger that had a siding there and, uh, her herself, the head ranger had heard some wood knocks and an ecologist from the U S forest service had told me that he had heard wood knocks on seven occasions over the last 16 years he'd been to the park. And I went in there and, you know, I believed that I had heard him twice close to me in there. And so, you know, I just kind of took note of, the time of the year. And so I went in there last fall and I started moving cameras into that area. I moved seven cameras in just hoping to be in place. And then I went back and three of them were taken. Uh, and, you know, it just kind of bums you out because, you know, you lose that time and, um, you know, not to mention your camera. And if you're using, you know, like I, all my cameras are the Reconyx cameras and they're expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've been trying to do more of that, and, and I've actually been moving a lot of my cameras. You know, I really made a mistake when I started messing with this about 10 years ago as I kept thinking that I was going to get a virgin Bigfoot in West Virginia. You know, there, there was so much remote area that I was going to come up on one, and I was going to luck into some evidence that everybody else was having trouble collecting. But, you know, the reality was that I was just spreading myself too thin, and that never happened. And so now I'm trying to shift all my cameras, all my recording into smaller areas. And, you know, you get to a point where I feel like that maybe right now around four months of the year, I kind of know where they are generally. And so I try to keep my cameras and my hiking in those particular areas. What months? You know, October, January, February, and May is where I'm at right now that, um, you know, one of the interesting things about game cameras is that, you know, all of us and Cliff, you know, when I spoke on that, I know you gave me some great pictures that people had passed on to you that I didn't have, but they were possible and looked pretty compelling that they may have been a Bigfoot. But, you know, everybody's always trying to get that picture of Bigfoot. But one of the things that's so helpful for me is like, you know, just knowing all the game that's in the area. And I'm trying to leave my cameras in place for a, a year at a time. So I know that there's about, you know, maybe in one place you have 20 or 25 deer a day. Well, then all of a sudden you go through a two-week period where there's no deer. And you're not seeing a Bigfoot, but, you know, you uh, are suspicious there's something there that's affecting your other game animals. And... um so then that's how I kind of look at the different areas like that. If I notice a change in how the wildlife's acting or I'll get more, uh, say, more deer in one area than I'm used to having. But it's all a theory. I mean, you know, it sounds good and everything until you're out there actually trying to get something. And, you know, and I spoke about in Ohio, I think the reality is, is that um, I think that they're probably hearing the cameras. You know, they're putting off about 30 decibels and, um you know, that's my suspicion anyways, that, uh, so you that wait, they're hearing them. 
you measured um, how how loud the game cameras are and the frequencies that they hum at? Yeah, there's actually studies out. Um, you know, there it's interesting. They did a study last fall where they were actually put game cameras. What they found was it was interesting. They all reacted differently to them. Now, the reality is they all saw the cameras. Um, but, you know, when I could see of them, it didn't look like they were really trying to hide them well. But they all saw them. Some of them were afraid of them. Some of them were angry at them. Some of them were indifferent to them. And, um, you know, the Chinese zoo did a study a few years ago. You know, they have some areas over there in their tropical rainforest or remote, and they're trying to find some new species. So they were testing the game cameras, too, to see which were the quietest ones. And um, they use the reconnaissance cameras as well over there. I mean, it's hard to know because it seems like that some of the um, – Pictures that people get that maybe are a Bigfoot are from cheaper cameras, but I don't know if it's a numbers game where there's, you know, just so many more cheaper cameras out there. Than, yeah, I would uh, think that's the case. Yeah, you know, that's my guess, too. Yeah, there's probably by tenfold. I mean, uh, Bushnell makes some pretty uh, reasonably priced ones or whatever versus a Reconyx, which are high end. You could You could buy three or four sometimes, uh, the, the cheaper ones per one that you'd want to get of a Reconyx, so. I think it's definitely a numbers game. You know, I think it's numbers, not only that, but then, you know, I know that before when I've talked, I've, I've actually put up there the woodland in different states and how many cameras you would actually need to cover it. And like, you know, I'm a master naturalist. And so sometimes we're studying different types of animals in different areas. And, you know, if, say for most wildlife like deer, we're going to try to have about one camera per 20 acres because, you know, you don't have to, um, have cameras every 10 feet or anything like that because of course you know everything is kind of traveling through that region that's in that area and so roughly one figures about every 20 acres if you could cover it but the reality is you know you're talking about needing hundreds of thousands of cameras um in order to cover just you know one state and we don't have that many cameras out it's about 36 percent of hunters are using the game cameras and of course you know, most hunters are close to a road or a trail. They're not going very far. They're only out at certain times of the year, largely. Um, so we just don't really have a concerted effort. Cliff, who was that uh, you were talking to me about? Um, I can't think of her name. I know you're friends with her, the female primatologist that. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, Dr. Anna Nakaris. Yeah, from yeah. Oxford. I remember you and I talking about that, and you really changed my thinking when she was talking about, uh, you know, how many game cameras they had, and they had them every 50 feet facing one direction or something like that. I remember you telling me something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we had a great conversation uh, one time about how she deploys game cameras, uh, and, and she had just so much to say. It was so interesting. She keeps meticulous notes and data and stuff. I was very, very impressed, so... Um, I, I can't go into too many of the details cause I don't remember them, but yeah, it was basically, uh, she would talk about how many, uh, the, the size of an area and how many game cams would be needed to make lines and, and like, like you're saying, put them all pointing in the same direction. So if anything passes through, uh, she's been successful as well. She's gotten a lot of fantastic pictures of these slow lorises out there in Sumatra that she studies. So I don't know. She's got a lot to say and I think Bigfooters would do uh, well to listen to her. She's supposed, was to, be, she's supposed to be the speaker at the Ohio conference, but uh, with all this coronavirus stuff, perhaps that won't happen. We'll see. 
I hope that uh, it doesn't turn out that way. I look forward to being able to hear her. But I thought it was interesting that, um, you know, one of the things that she was talking about, you know, is where do you put the cameras at? And you say, we well, you know, in saddles and high points and low points and long creeks and ponds and grasslands and so forth. And then, you know, she said something along the lines of, well, how do you know they travel there? And, you know, it really struck me at, um, you know, that maybe I really try to need to, um, you know, just mix up what you're doing all the time. I, mean, I think it's great to come up with creative new ideas, but, you know, even yeah, in the game cams. I do remember walking away from that conversation thinking, this is really cool because she says, well, uh, she asked me, like, where do you put them? And I you know, lay, listed off some of the things you said. And she goes, well, it doesn't seem to be working. Hey, what else? Exactly. You're, you're right. <laughs> and I, I always thought it should be just keep the IR off too, like have no flash on it so that if you got something during the day, they should get that. And at night, um, I think, I think they, I think they locate a bunch of the cameras too, by seeing besides hearing them, smelling them. Um, I think they also see those flashes go off and it, you know, alerts them. They, they may be somewhere nearby at night and then like a, a leaf falls in front of it or a bird flies in front of it or a deer walks in front of it and all of a sudden the flash goes off and they're just like, bam, there's, there's one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I'm just trying to mix them all up. Some of them up, I'm turning off like that. Some I'm using just videos and, um, you know, the problem is, is, you know, you just don't know, like there was this one place in Cranberry wilderness area, which is the largest wilderness area in the Eastern United States. And the Monongahela National Forest is 1.1 million acres, and the uh, cranberries inside it, if it's around 50,000 acres. And, you know, I had a sighting from a nurse that drove through the wilderness area, a very clear daytime sighting. She was bright and well-spoken. And then a couple months later, a doctor and his wife were on the same road, had a daytime sighting. And it drove me crazy, you know, just looking at maps, thinking, you know, something that's such a rare animal that you know, it was seen a couple of times just on this right in the same place. And, um, you know, so I went up there and in that same location, I put out a video only camera. I put out a couple game cameras and, you know, I just pulled them a couple of weeks ago and, you know, there's, I just didn't get the money shot. Um, but Did you get one any of the peculiar triggers, things that, you, you know, quite sure why that happened. The thing that I noticed the most was that in October, the, what I was talking about earlier, I had a two-week period where um, there was no game on my cameras at all. And normally there's, you know, coyotes, there's deer, there's all this type of stuff. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things I've really been trying to do a better job at is just doing a better job at keeping notes on everything that I do. And, you know, every time I come out of the woods, I sit down on my iPad and I write for whatever length of time it takes me to write about you know, my thoughts on what I saw that day or where I was at and, you know, what location I need to be in. Um, you know, just like that one area in Ohio that I said that I had heard them, I was certain twice and I was really close to them. And, um, you know, I thought that I needed to be back about the middle of the February this year. So I was in there three times between January and February, but then after being there this year, I really felt like I needed to be there from the middle of January to like the first week of February. So it's like, um, you know, maybe just tuning it all up, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. that's 
you got to have time for that, you know, um, at like a base level. What, what's normal there? So you have something to compare it against. It takes. Uh, I'm glad you're working one spot. I think that's probably wise. I mean, it's fun to skip around and everything, but to focus on one particular area and really give it all you got, you're really going to get to know that piece of land. That's got to help. You know, I like I said, I really think that I messed up. I just went too many places. And then when you're talking to witnesses, you know, every week or every couple of weeks, you're getting a new a new case or a new sighting or somebody heard something. And of course, they're wanting you to come and you're going to all these places. But, you know, you're not staying in one particular place. And so that's why now in West Virginia, I'm trying to go maybe just to two or three places. And in Ohio, really just one or two places and just concentrate all my efforts on there. And uh, sorry if you guys can hear my dog. It's kind of funny. I don't know if Bubs, you remember this or not, but I was telling you one time when I saw you, I said, I was thinking about getting a dog, man, but I'm not sure how I feel about it. And you said, oh, you should get one, man. The only sighting I had was when Monkey saw, I saw a monkey look one way and I got a glimpse of one. And uh, after you did that, then I went and got uh, Shade, my lab. And so he's my uh, my right hand dog in the woods. Well, right on. And you know, you know, they see and smell so much better than us that uh, you know I'm listening and I'm watching, but I'm always glancing at him to see if he, uh, you know, if he's he notices anything. Right. Hey, Russ, what what uh what all entail what all is entailed in becoming a master naturalist? You know, it's interesting, like. Quite a few of the states have different programs, but um, maybe the most respected or one of the most respected is West Virginia. And West Virginia has a state class that is funded by the state. So you only pay $100 to go through the program. It takes a year to complete at the very least. You have classes every other week for a year. And on Friday nights, you'll have a three-hour lecture by a university professor on a subject. And, of course, it covers everything that you have, you know, bees, wildflowers, uh, mammals, salamanders, snakes, trees, birds. And then the next morning, you have three hours in the field at a location that, um, you know, will help, you know, it's a lake, it's whatever it happens to be for that particular subject. But I mean, it's quite a commitment. I think when I did it, there was 30 something people that started and there was only me and a nurse that finished it in the year, you know, just because, you know, every other week for a year, you know, for two days, for six hours, it's quite the commitment. And some of the states have a program similar, but, you know, they're more of like a uh, master gardener program where maybe it's just like, you know, five or six classes or something like that. And um, I know Ohio has a program like that that a lot of great people are in. It's just a shorter period of class, of time. But, you know, that's what really got me interested in. You know, I was too busy to not be practicing, um, you know, because I'm a chiropractor and I practice full time. But I um, just got interested in the Bigfoot thing. And that was one way I could do it. And it was funny because. I uh, went up to the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, and it was maybe, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago, something like that. And there was, at that point, there was maybe just a couple hundred people there. So it was pretty big, but not huge like it is now. And um, and it was funny. I was driving back, and I didn't know anybody, of course. You know, I wasn't in Bigfoot world then. 
And one of my friends called and said, well, what'd you think? And I said, well, you know, there's some pretty interesting people there. And she's like, well, you know, I don't want to be mean, Russ, but you know, you did go to a Bigfoot thing. And, uh, so then after that, I looked up, uh, BFRO and, you know, say maybe 10 times a year, they were having an expedition around the country and I saw they were having one in Ohio. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go and I'm just going to see what happens if, if it's weird, I'm leaving. And, um, that was back when moneymaker <laughs> went to all of them or a lot of them, I should say. And that was the first time that I met Matt and I just hit it off with Matt and I started doing everything for Ohio and West Virginia then. Hmm. And, um, you know, and the rest is history. It's been a lot of fun for me. And, you know, up to that point, I really think that I, you know, I had some experiences when I was young as an outdoorsman. That's what originally got me interested and, um, so I, I kind of thought something was there and the very first week that I was doing the reports, I got a report from a trooper in West Virginia and, you know, I talked to him and he was compelling and him and his wife had been on a four wheeler and they were riding on a ride away and he likes to hunt ginseng. And so, um, they were, had cut off the ride away to look for places that might be some ginseng to hunt in the fall. And he said, he looked up and he saw a fire burn stump. And he looked down and when he glanced back up that he said, you know, and then he asked me, have you ever seen one? And I said, no. And he said, just think sheet of plywood. And he said it was behind the small tree. And he said, I just started hitting reverse. I was, he said, I had a gun, but it was too small. And he said, I was just trying to get out of there. And, and my wife said, what are you doing? And he said, look, 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 look. And she just started screaming. Oh my God, no. Oh my God, no. And they got turned around and got out of there. And, um, you know, the wife had had to get counseling for post-traumatic stress and they'd moved from the country into a town. And I took, uh, took him back out there with, uh, Darren Pavarnik, which is another investigator from West Virginia. And, uh, it was two troopers and they both had their guns out and they were both chain smoking. And the one that had the siding was crying. And I thought, and he saw something, you know, he, <laughs> he really oh. did. And, uh, you know, so later it was, you know, I did, uh, around 200 different interviews of witnesses and that's when I did the book. I just thought, you know, it's time to put some of this together. You know, I was getting to a point where there were some things that I thought that, you know, I might be able to tell people or, or give them a hand on if you don't know where to go, you know, how to get an idea of where to go. And, um, you know, that's the rest. Now I'm working on uh, a second book. And of course, uh, Cliff, you know, Joe Bielart, that's who's helping me along with uh -huh. the project. Good friend. Yeah, great friend. And um, this one's on really all of Appalachia. Um, it's expanded some because, you know, there was only like, uh, I forget, like maybe nine or 10 states in 1967 when they started uh, the war on poverty, but they keep expanding it and expanding it. So, I had uh, convinced the publisher to just let me choose five states in Appalachia that I thought that, you know, the best states I could get, um, you know, some evidence out of. So, you know, each state I'm going and interviewing whoever I think is probably the best witness or the best investigator in that state, like in Tennessee. You know, of course, I'm going to visit with Matt Pruitt and um, then I'm going to go interview the, whoever that had the best Bigfoot sighting locally uh, in that area that's still around. And then I'm going to spend a night and a day in that area 
and uh, that'll be a chapter in the book for that particular state. Mm-hmm. And, oh, interesting. Um, like a journal sort of entry research thing, travel thing. Like a, it's a little bit different than your other book then. Yeah. You know, the other book I talked about things like treat foods, which is, you know, like everybody always says that, you know, Bigfoot's eating deer. And of course, you know, obviously they're a large animal. And so they got to have something like that. And a lot of times there's not much food aside from say deer in certain areas of the country, but it's not helpful in Appalachia to say that um, if you can find a lot of deer, you can find Bigfoot because largely there's deer everywhere. And so you know, I start looking at when I go into an area, you know, what is the food source or why would be one be in the area at that particular time of the year? You know, and I, I talk about a treat food and a treat food is a food that's not readily available the rest of the year. But it's something special that I might find at that particular time of the year in that location, whether it's berries or it's an orchard or it's somebody's garden or whatever it happens to be. But and of course, you can't always figure it out. You don't always know, but in general, it's helpful. And um, then I started looking at, you know, I called it a perch. And a perch was, um, I found in these areas, like if you go into a park and there's a dead end road and it's a place where maybe people park or maybe fishermen go there to fish and there's a trash can or something in that area, that if you go there, and it's, it's in a park and it's connected to a remote area, there's a good chance that if you, um, Cliff, I think I've heard you talk something similar and you say, Wait, where's the sniper? Yeah, they, well, they use, yeah, they use uh, terrain strategically, we believe, you know? Um, yeah. And sitting around watching when that trash can gets filled up might be a good strategy for easy calories. Yeah, you know, and I talk about, I just call it a perch. And, um, you know, because I always, it's always kind of in a place where they can sit and watch what's going on in that particular area. And, I, and, um, and it's interesting, you know, I've found several of those places that, um, you know, are active at different times of the year. And um, one that I've been finding lately, and I've found it in three different places now, is I've found it in parks where there's a shooting range. And it seems like that people are hesitant to spend time in the woods or hike in the part of the park or around an area in a national park where there's a shooting range. And it seems like that they're more comfortable with that. And that, um, you know, sometimes I'm finding evidence that they're in those areas. Huh. And so I think, you know, maybe they're coming in there after dark, after the hunters have left and they're raiding the trash cans there. And, um, you know, and I don't know, of course, this kind of goes back a while, but, you guys might remember when they did the uh, Ohio how, you know, that came from a trash can that had been loaded with, um, you know, day old chickens from a grocery store, the rotisserie chickens that they'd huh. been putting in this garbage can for a while. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, that's where they got that recording at. Well, you know, um, I have heard a lot of reports at, from um, with the off-highway vehicle parks uh, where there's a lot of noise and people rolling around during the day and whatever. And then at night, the Sasquatches are, are at least heard in the vicinity. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe there's something to the whole thing about uh, – well, clearly there's something to – they know when people are there. They come on in. But firing ranges, that's an interesting one because most people um, – I don't know if I would fall into this category, but most people would think that that would repel them. 
and get them further away from that area. No. It's interesting. Like if you go to like here, we have some skeet ranges. If you go to a skeet range, there'll be deer literally walking underneath where you're shooting with the Hmm. pellets falling on them. You know, they have just gotten conditioned and used to, um, used to that. And, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, that it's like that. But, you know, I'm messing with that. I'm messing with, uh, man, I just love the habituator people, you know, the people that, you know, believe that they have something coming in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we have some of those here in West Virginia and then a couple of people in Ohio that I'm spending time with as well. And, you know, some great stories that come from those people. Any uh, um, similarities between the kinds of stories that come out? Any parallels um, that you see, you know, having a couple different situations to look at? You know, I think that the thing that's interesting, and this goes more about the witness and the animal, is it seems like that at first the people are really interested in trying to come up with evidence. But then as time goes on, it seems like that the people come enthralled with the relationship and they don't care as much about the evidence. Mm, and yeah. then because, sometimes uh, with witnesses, it seems like that they um, at first, maybe it's just a few things are about Bigfoot, but then it becomes almost like everything is, becomes Bigfoot related. Mm, yeah. Uh, Squatch on the brain. But it's interesting. Like I had this one lady here in West Virginia that uh, lived near Summersville Lake and uh, she had a sighting and she's a grandma and she's a hunter and she came over a hill and she saw something that was small about bear size. And, and, uh, she watched it for several minutes and she said she knew it wasn't a bear, but she didn't know what it was. And she was watching it and she started to feel nuts or pebbles being thrown at her. And it was hmm. from behind her. And she said, I'm not looking at anything until I see what this is. And then shortly thereafter, it turned and looked at her and, she knew exactly what it was. She said, Oh my gosh, it's a Bigfoot. And she turned around when she turned around and looked behind her while was throwing something. She saw nothing. Of course. Then when she turned back around, the Bigfoot was gone. <laughs> and which, you know, we, we all hear that all the time. Everybody always says, you know, never take your eyes off the Bigfoot, but yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so she, um, you know, she called me, uh, she got my name. And, and so, you know, we put up a game camera, we put up a cheap game camera, um, because you know, they're very loud and, um, something threw sticks at it all night until the batteries died. Huh. And then, um, you know, she put up a feeding station and she started, you know, we tried to make it so that, um, you know, it can't be other animals getting to it. It's not perfect. It's hard to do that still, but you know, I mean, you're, you're really trying to limit it. And it's interesting. She was telling me, you know, she would take a walk every day and, uh, she, her grandchildren got her yellow flowers. That's what she liked. And when she was taking her walk up through the woods that her yellow flowers were laying on the path. Well, you know, she thought that was weird and she picked them up and went back and put it on her porch. Well, then the next day when she went out and walked, then there was yellow wildflowers that were laying in the same place. Hmm. And, um, you know, so it's intriguing um, yeah, yeah, that's that's the kind of fun stuff about uh, those circumstances. Uh, yeah, seeing, you know, see what they're gonna do, and like, could that be them? That's so interesting. Like, the, consider the possibility that it might be. You know, yeah, there's a lady in Ohio that um, 
her husband was going to cut uh, some firewood and he had called her and he's like, come down here and look at this. And he, when she went into the woods, she saw that there had been these bunches of berries, like something had take the berries, uh, the berry vines themselves and had kind of put them in stacks and piles. And she said, you know, it's almost like when he went in the woods, he disturbed something and been collecting the berries and it, it left him behind. Well, you know, she was interested in Bigfoot. I mean, many of the people that you're dealing with, you know, they don't have any knowledge of Bigfoot at all or any interest in it. Just something happens. And I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about Bigfoot witnesses is, you know, that's the thing that there's really nothing in common. I mean, they're not necessarily outdoorsmen. Um, some of them, you know, are just city people. I mean, the most common sighting, of course, is, you know, a, a car sighting, you know, and that could be anybody that would have that. But um, so nonetheless, this, this lady started leaving things out. She was using a little shell like you get at the beach, you know, that kind of like some of them are kind of attached still. And she would put little things inside this, this shell and something was, you know, putting things back inside there, you know, like uh, would take whatever she left and exchange. And, you know, I really am not sure about uh, all that. I mean, when I'm in the woods, you know, I'm leaving stuff myself and rock caves and old mines. I want stumps and different things, you know, rocks, collared marbles, uh, toys, things like that you know and i take a picture of them and go back later to see if they've been um messed with um mm -hmm. you know i leave peanut butter and nutella in the woods i duct tape it to trees and um you know of course some of our other friends like the great investigator from kentucky you know he's doing that stuff as well and uh you know sometimes uh you know it appears it disappears or messed with and you know later you'll find it in that same area Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's, it's certainly not proof it's compelling. It's interesting. And it's probably something to take into consideration. I want to go back to game cameras for a second, if we can, okay. uh, I, I want to think about your, uh, talk about your strategy for uh, putting them out, everything about not only location, but like the a smaller sense of the location, uh, as opposed to like topo topographic level, I'm looking at like in the Canyon, I would do this. And also how do you disguise the game cameras or do you at all? Okay. So in terms of disguising them, I have in the past actually used um, a chisel, a chainsaw. I've actually cut out pieces of the bark or the tree or a log so that my camera actually fits inside. And then I replace the bark over top of it with just holes cut out just for whatever the camera needs to be able to make the shot. I have... Um, there used to be ghillie suit like type things that you could buy to put on your cameras. But what I found was they kind of got weighted down and they just didn't work that good. And they kind of obstructed the camera. And then now I use the camera that you buy similar to put on like hunting blinds or something like that. And I try to leave everything, including the camera out for like several months before I even put it in a field, just trying to get the smell, you know, to burn off it or whatever. And, um, but man, I have tried, um, it's so funny. I mean, the first six years I did in West Virginia, I literally never saw a person on one of my cameras. I mean, they're always so remote. They're always off trail. They're always in the middle of nowhere. Now, when I go into an area, I may put a camera on like a trailhead or something like that, or if there's a gated forest road or something like that, I may put a camera on it just to get an idea of how many people are going in and out. 
at what time of the day and that kind of stuff. But other than that, you know, I'm not seeing people. And so I was in, uh, for instance, the gorge in West Virginia, the new river gorge, which you guys did were there for the TV show. And, uh, Bogues, I think you guys got snow when you were oh, we there. Got, we got, it was like the worst ice storm you guys had in several years. Yeah. So I was in the gorge and um, I had heard these wood knocks. And so they were from this area, kind of like one of those perches that we're talking about where, you know, it's a perfect place where something can just sit and look down. And I had heard those wood knocks. And there was four of them. And they were five seconds apart. And, you know, I'm looking up there and I can't really see. I'm just not in a clear enough area that I can get a good vision of it. Well, about 30 seconds later, these four wheelers came down through there that weren't supposed to be in the area. And I just kind of felt like that um, they were saying, hey, watch out or whatever. So I went back to that area, hiked in there. And when I came through the woods, you know, nothing can see you coming. And when I popped out where I was below this cliff and this cliff is probably, you know, a couple hundred feet straight above me. And as soon as I walked out, I heard boom, 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 boom. And so as opposed to the other ones where I just felt like, you know, something was saying, hey, watch out, there's somebody around. To me, this meant, oh, my God, somebody's right here. And uh, so I started hiking up there. Of course, you know, it's off trail. You know, I'm just trying to wind my way up there in this mountainside. And, man, son, the terrain and the gorge in West Virginia is so steep. And... It took me about an hour and a half just to get there. And I mean, it's this thing where you can just see several hundred feet above you, but you know, it's taking you that long to get up there. And when I got up there on the way, I heard twice single knocks, you know, and I just kind of felt like that was the way they were moving or whatever. And uh, there was a coal mine up there and, um, you know, had been abandoned. There's around 10,000 of them in West Virginia that they, they haven't been closed. They're just in these areas, some of them remote. And, um, you know, much like a cave, you know, they stay at constant temperature inside. And so I thought, man, this is a perfect place. It can be, you know, can stay up here, can hear people coming. Nobody can get here. And, um, you know, I put a camera on it and of course, you know, it's hard to get everything lined up exactly right. And it has this thing where this feature where you can target it and then you can kind of walk back and forth and it flashes to show you whether or not, you know, you're lined up, but it's still not perfect. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think I was doing it and I didn't have it lined up exactly right the first time. And then I went back up and I adjusted the camera again. And, and, you know, I had found a footprint up there that was pretty good and, uh, and it was pretty large. It was 14 inches and, you know, it had toes and everything. And, um, so the next time I put the camera up, well, the very first day I had it up, a bear swatted it <laughs> and, um, and that was the most bears I'd seen. The Cranberry Wilderness area, you know, is a national bear. Well, it was a bear wildlife, ref, a bear refuge. It's not any longer, but most of the bears you can see now are in the gorge. And man, there was a lot of bears that came through that area. But, you know, Cliff, going back to what you were saying, I would put a camera so that it would be, you know, as you're climbing these mountains, there's flats every so often. And most of the game and the wildlife is traveling along these flats. So, you know, I would try sitting one one side of the flat and i would have that there for months and months and months and i would move to the other side of the flat and then i would get so i was shooting straight down the flat one direction and then i would try to shoot down straight down the flat the other direction but the reality is you know you just even if you're in a you have a good setup you're just not sure that one comes by your camera because you know they're so rare mm -hmm. and um so now I'm trying to concentrate on 
um, something that makes noise like a creek or, you know, a road or whatever it happens to be that I can disguise it with. So like it wasn't rough enough before now, you know, you're trying to, I mean, I've taken cheap cameras and put them on the same tree with an expensive camera or close to one. And, um, I've tried putting them up in trees on ladders. Like for instance, there's this one park in it's Ohio's most remote park and they have a Creek that runs through, but the Creek is very, very deep maybe 15 or 20 feet. And so, um, there's no way for anything to cross the Creek other than swim it or two of these remote bridges that are bridges from, you know, maybe 40 or 50 years ago, there's nobody using them. There's foot traffic for people who happen to hike there, but no cars or anything are going through them. And so I took a ladder and I went up 15 feet in a tree and hit a camera on each of these bridges. So now for this, um, well, one's been up about a year and the other one I just put up. And so I'll leave them in place now for a year or two and just pull the cards periodically, you know, cause I just think that, you know, there's no way to cross that Creek for miles that, you know, inevitably something's going to want to cross it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's interesting. Uh, something that you said, uh, just a, a moment or two ago kind of struck me into something that, uh, I think is really, really smart. Just want to bring people's attention to it. It's, it seemed to me that you were saying that you are choosing to put them by rivers in, in hopes that the river will mask whatever electronic noise, the, the game camera might be emitting. Yeah. It's about 30 decibels is what the cheap ones are. The reconics ones are about half that. But if you're if you have a little kid around you, they can hear your game cameras. I mean, I can't. It, so you just you need know, to find yourself a good loud river to be next to you to hopefully <laughs> nullify that. Exactly. And if you can just get a Bigfoot just to walk past that one particular spot, yeah, right when luck, you have but... the perfect setup. <laughs> right. And I'm but not least... even sure that anybody would even believe it. You know, there's um, you know, there's some pictures out there now are pretty believable, but you know, there's so much um, trickery that goes wrong on the internet, you know, that unless it's somebody that we all know that, you know, we're probably not going to believe that it's real. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard. It, we're, how do you, how do you, uh, look at a picture, I guess, at the end of the day, you know, cause people are always asking, uh, Bobo and I, I know for sure, like, Hey, what about this picture or this picture? And we have to come up with the verdict, like right on the spot sometimes to even give a, a an opinion other than, I don't know if there is one. Uh, but when you sit down, uh, how into, uh, photo analysis do you get and what kind of things do you look for or, or are you more, or more an audio guy at this point no i'm i'm strictly i would say that i'm looking at pictures almost all the time you know there's so many good people out there um david ellis monongahela guys like that that are listening to the recordings that you know i don't really feel like i had to worry about it too much you know i mean if you hear something that you think might be worthwhile there's people to send it to but yeah, isn't that great having a network? I thank God for my friends because I don't have to know everything. Exactly. And, you know, and Cliff and I don't know how many times <laughs> I've sent pictures to you or to Jeff Meldrum, you know, when somebody sends me a foot tra a footprint or I find one and, uh, you know, just to get some other people to look at, you know, their opinion on it or whatever. But, you know, I think the reality is, is that um, it's hard to judge someone else's pictures you know, when I'm looking at mine, they're going to have between 3,000 and 4,500 pictures most of the time on them. And man, you're just flying through them, you know, just click, click, click as fast as you can go, just trying to get through them. Because, you know, like Sunday, I pulled two cameras 
um, that it, were in that area that I think that they're in that particular time of the year. And I, and I pulled two of the cameras and I haven't had time to look at them yet, but you know, there'll be a lot on them just to go, to go through there. Um, but when you have your setup on where it's at and you're looking at pictures over the course of a year, you know, the different seasons, you get comfortable looking at exactly what, um, is supposed to be there and you pick up quickly on, you know, it's a lot like when I'm seeing x-rays with patients, you know, doctors don't really train when we look at x-rays to look at the things that are bad, but we train normal anatomy. And so when we see something bad, it really sticks out. Mm. And so that's the way that game camera films are a lot of the time. We're looking at the same picture, the same site repetitiously. And so anytime that something else shows up and it really sticks out. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like blink photography, you know, uh, or like the astronomical technique. And actually, uh, MK Davis utilizes this on the Patterson Gimlin film, where you take two or three adjacent frames and like you blink them back and forth, and whatever is different has moved since the last one. Um, and they find, you know, planets that way or asteroids or whatever. But it's also really uh, applicable to game cams, even though it's a still picture and not a video, like it's in the case of the PG film that those little out of place things really do jump out because it's almost like motion. It's the only motion available in a still picture, actually going back and exactly. forth. Yeah. You know, and, and largely now I'm spending almost all of my time outside during the day. I mean, I did the whole night thing for years and years and years. And I think it's fun with your, with your friends or, you know, if you're at a group or you're leading something or whatever, or you're putting on an expedition, you know, people are wanting to have that experience, but man, I've had the experiences and now I want to solve it. You know, I want to know what the deal is. And so I'm out there during the day. Cause you know, they're there during the day as well. And, you know, you're just hoping to get lucky. You know, if I see the buzzards somewhere when I'm deep in the wilderness area, you know, I'm going to wherever the buzzards are. I want to see what's dead. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, but the odds are, you know, I talked about this at one of the conferences on, you know, you, you assume that if a Bigfoot would be like the rest of primates, you know, they'd live around, you know, say 40 years, more or less, maybe a little bit over that. And, you know, if you had a rough estimate and just said by chance that there would be eight or 10,000 of them across North America, you know, in, in reality, you're only looking at around 300 or 350 dead ones a year in all of North America. And you start dividing that up into states. I mean, like in West Virginia, or Ohio, there might only be three dead ones to find a year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not, um, you know, maybe that's assuming that they're not uh, covering uh, their dead with brush or rocks like some of the higher primates already do. Um, mm -hmm. or, or elephants for that matter, right? Yeah, or elephants, exactly. Yeah, it's not like a higher thinking sort of thing that's necessary uh, to do that level of burial. Yeah. But then again, I mean, uh, I'm not trying to slight the elephants. So any elephants out there listening, please forgive me for saying <laughs> that. But uh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you know, but it's you know, we're all trying to do different things. We're all trying to come up with new ideas and, um, you know, just hoping that one of us can get lucky. I mean, um, I put on uh, Twitter today, I posted something about, you know, it's apparent with the coronavirus thing that I don't think that if the government's uh, I'm not big on conspiracy theories, but if they do know something about Bigfoot, I mean, I think that it's for sure now they couldn't tell the public because the public certainly couldn't handle knowing that Bigfoot was real. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, this wouldn't know. be the timing for it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, here in West Virginia, I'm sure that if it was West Virginia, Kentucky, anywhere in Appalachia, if a coal truck comes around the road or a timber truck, then I feel confident that we would all um, 
hear about it here. You know, I'm not sure that would be swept under the rug quickly. And, you know, I don't know how many different reports I've done. Maybe, I mean, several of the hunters had clear daytime sightings close where they were looking through their scope. Um, you guys interviewed one near the New River Gorge Bridge that was one of my witnesses. Um, you know, they had a good sighting there. Um, same situation, you know, they're looking through a scope and there's going to be, um, a person that is going to pull that trigger, you know, and I think there has been historically, you know, there's some stories out there and that kind of stuff. And I'm sure some of them are true and there's probably some that we don't know about. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I remember when coyotes weren't popular or, you know, populated very much in Ohio, I was deer hunting and my brother-in-law told me that he saw a coyote. And of course, you know, we're in farm country up there. And I said, well, did you shoot, shoot it? And he said, no. And I said, well, why didn't you shoot it? And he said, man, he just, I just saw it so quickly and I just got a glimpse and it just, it looked like a dog and it caught me off guard. And I think that a lot of times, you know, that's the way it is with sightings of Bigfoot. You know, no one goes into the woods largely expecting to see, you know, a higher primate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most people don't, which I find surprising, but it's true. Yeah. I, I, you know, I wish that there was a you know, way. I mean, I think that hunters have a lot of sightings. That's how I tend to spend my wood time in the woods is, you know, as a hiker, just listening, or, uh, if I'm good in a good area sitting for a while, uh, like a hunter might. And, you know, and of course you're coupling that with the areas of the year that there's a history of repeated sightings or that you yourself have heard something or suspect something from your game cameras or your audio recorders. And, um, you know, then you're out there just hoping that you're going to get lucky because, you know, I'm assuming that largely they're probably not staying in one particular area all the time, um, you know, just because of the food situation that, you know, they're kind of moving around some, you know, following that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's probably a good model. Like they, they frequent areas, but don't stick around anywhere for too long, you know, kind of yeah. making their, making their circuit, you know? Yeah. Then I think circuit's a good way to put it. You know, it's probably... At different times of the year, they're going to be in certain areas. And and I think that, um, you know, history kind of plays that out. You know, we all know um, in our area that we're in that there's certain time of the year that you expect them to be in a certain area. I'm sure out there where you guys are that there's salmon runs or something and there's a bunch of sightings at a certain place or something. And, and um, you know, and I'm sure that there's a Bigfooter somewhere that knows that same thing. And they're probably, you know, out there um, after that. And, um, I'll tell you one of the other interesting things that, um, you know, Derek Randall's and those guys from Olympic project, when they were, um, messing around with the, the possible bed out there, you know, there is historically some, some beds have been found around. And for instance, now on BFRO.net, if you go on the, uh, new reports or reports just listed. There's a great report done by Mark DeWorth that runs the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. It's in Gallia County near the Ohio River on um, a bedding area and the experiences that a guy had there. And, um, you know, I've been paying attention trying to, you know, because I think it's inevitable that um, if they have them somewhere else, they're going to have them all over. And uh, last year, on a few different occasions, you know, I believe that I had found a couple, but, you know, it was in warmer months when I was finding them. And, uh, where I was looking was that in the past, I had noticed that it didn't seem like that I would find most of the activity in the main hollow 
course in West Virginia here, you know, we say holler, but so it wouldn't be in the main hollow. And so of course, you know, uh, prime me, we always think it, you know, when it's cold and it's winter that they're going to be on that South facing hillside, maybe up a little higher where they can get some sun. And then in the, uh, warmer months, you know, maybe on that North facing hillside. And so, you know, I would look on Google earth and I would try to find right of ways that go through West Virginia that weren't accessible by four wheelers that, um, would have berries on them. And then I would look for a hollow that ran east and west. So it would have a north facing side. So I would get on that north facing side near that right away that was remote. And I would just start going back and forth on each of those flats all the way up to the top of the mountain. And, um, and a couple of times, like I said, I believe that I had found, you know, what might have been a bed, you know, it was, um, of course here we have a lot of black bears, but, um, there's 17,000 around in West Virginia. There's, you know, less than a hundred residence bears in Ohio. Um, but you know, black bear beds aren't really that large. And, uh, the ones I find were a little large and they're, um, kind of matted down, kind of almost like a donut, uh, kind of deeper. And, um, you know, one had a big pile of walnuts in it and, um, you know, you cracked don't know. Or uncracked. 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 Uncracked, but just in a pile together. Um, so, you know, then you have to spend a while on that hillside looking to see if you can find a walnut tree. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it was about maybe a 15-minute walk to the berries, but for something that would be larger than me that probably is a lot quicker on the hillside, you know, maybe a five-minute walk or something. Um, but, you know, you don't know. It's just something that you keep in mind at a particular time of the year. I try to move cameras in around that place in right now. And then whenever I hike, um, when the berries are out, I'll try to stick in that same place or areas that are similar to that. And, um, you know, just hope to get lucky. Uh, yeah, you know what? And yeah, everyone has to lean heavily upon that last part. You know, it's just a matter of getting lucky. And you just have to do everything you can to stack the odds in your favor by using the data you know, the sighting report frequencies and all that sort of stuff, the terrain, the topography. <clears throat> yeah. But you just got to get lucky at the end of the day, but yeah. you can't get, can't get lucky if you're staying home, man. That's the whole thing. I mean, you know, you have to be out there. You remember, uh, I know my books, I talked about Hukin and Sullivan and I don't know if you remember, they were a pair of uh, wildlife biologists. I think they were in Oregon or Washington. I forget now which state they were in. And this yeah, was in the seventies. Oregon. It was Oregon. Oregon. Okay. And they'd had a sighting. And of course, you know, they got interested in it. And so for a long time, for years, they were holding cameras because, you know, back in the 70s, of course, we just had those regular cameras you'd hold in your hand. And they were going through the woods and, uh, you know, keeping meticulous notes. And they said that it took about 200 hours in the field to come up with some type of evidence, whether it was a track or scat or a possible sighting or something like that. And over the years, as I've kept my notes, I found that 200 hours is a good number. Um, you know, that it seems like I have to be in there. So the most of the time, of course, you know, it's great. You're hiking and you're out there and it's relaxing and we're getting back with nature and all that. But, uh, you know, then occasionally, you know, you're going to hear something maybe or mm -hmm. find something or find a track. I mean, in Appalachia, the train that we have here, you know, is just not very conducive to leaving tracks. No, the forests are terrible for that. And even when you do get something, uh, a lot of the forest debris distorts the, the shape. And yeah, I ran into that problem just recently, oddly enough. Uh, but I could actually see more in the print 
in the impression in the ground than the when what the uh, the cast ended up looking like too. It was an interesting thing. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 